All right, Jesse, last show might have been the saddest in love murder history. What's the story this week? This case has everything. Money, love, sex, affairs, Russian orphans, Hamptons beach houses, and of course, murder. Let's find out how the other half lives and dies this week. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about greed, lust, betrayal, and the horrors that lurk in human hearts. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Also, guys, we are still doing stickers for reviews And I think somebody who recently left a review was like, hey, where's my sticker? (laughs) So if you have left us a review, past, present, in the future, we'd love for you to do that. Just do a screenshot and send it to us either on Facebook, Instagram, or feel free to email us at lovemurder.love so we can send you your free stickers. Okay, so before we get started on today's episode, which I'm very excited to jump into, just a little update that Andy has, a personal... This is so intense. It's so intense. And I was, you know, Andy sent me a message after the episode aired. So why don't you tell us about your personal connection to last week's episode with Shanda? Yeah. So my step-siblings who are amazing, they listened to the show and they texted me with my stepmom, Sherry, who sold her house to Tony Lawrence's family. So when they moved from Indiana to Ohio, my family, they sold their house to the Lawrences. And so they knew about this case before we covered it, but hadn't told me about it because they were like, ah, we don't know. It's like pretty devastating. And I was like, yeah, it's very devastating. And I cannot believe that I have a personal connection to the case. Sherry told me all about it, meeting the Lawrences, said that they, you know, they seemed nice. And out of the bunch, I feel like Tony and her parents seemed the most normal-ish. They tried to help with like her rape situation and seemed like supportive parents. You know, it was just unfortunate that like the Times weren't able to support Tony as much as they should have. No, yeah. And as far as like anyone that can claim there was some sort of peer pressure part of the situation, I think only Tony really could. I mean, I I think that she could have done more, obviously, as we talked about last episode. But for sure, like she was the only one that seemed to not actively participate, you know? Yeah. Wild though, huh? So crazy. So your stepmother sold the house that Tony was living in when the murders happened. Yes. When the murder happened. Wow. Okay. Crazy. Okay. So we are going totally different. You know, that was like Midwestern torture tragedy. (gasps) And now we're going to jump into a real lifestyles of the rich and famous murder over here. Love it. Where is this one? Oh, it's in Manhattan in the Hamptons, baby. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Totally different. Totally different. And I think these kind of stories are really fun because I think that there's like an idea that we all have that rich people have their shit together and like these perfect lives and stories like this show us that that is not the truth. Not the case. Yep. Yeah, we love to, you know, raise the curtain, peep in the windows of the mansions and see how it's really going down. Expose everything. 
Yes, exactly. So thank you to Ryan C for this great recommendation. I do so love a posh crime. We've got some real characters to discuss with you today. And I'm going to start with the scene of a horrific murder in a multi-million dollar beach house in the Hamptons, playground to the rich and famous. It was a crisp and sunny October day as Mark Angelson looked out the window of the corporate helicopter that had risen out of Manhattan and was currently en route to an exclusive helipad in the Hamptons. The visit was hardly pleasure. (laughs) Oh, I know. This is a different type of story for us, huh? (laughs) We're not dealing with the white trash right here. We're dealing with the the fancy trash. The the royal trash. The fancy trash. Oh, God. The visit was hardly pleasure, and Mark felt anxious during each minute of the half-hour ride. His business partner and dear friend, Ted Ammon, had gone missing. He had stopped answering calls on Saturday night, and Mark had become especially alarmed when Ted failed to show up for work on Monday, nor pick up his kids for his scheduled visitation. Mark knew that Ted loved his twin children more than anything else in the world. He may even skip out of work, even though that also wouldn't be likely, but he would never let his kids down. Yeah. His fears worsening, he commissioned the company helicopter to deliver himself and, wait for it, Ted's faithful chauffeur, Milton. Oh, his name is Milton? Milton. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. To the Hamptons, so Mark could look around at Ted's last known whereabouts, a seven-bedroom East Hampton mansion that had become the epicenter of a vicious and expensive divorce from Ted's vengeful, soon-to-be ex-wife, Generosa. Generosa? That's her name. And she is something else. The once-happy couple was currently involved in a protracted divorce, though an agreement had recently been met. Generosa was a terrifying, beautiful, cold woman with a passionate streak that could lend itself to generosity and creativity or chilling revenge on those who had wronged her. With this in mind, Mark donned some work gloves provided by Milton to go into the house just in case the worst had come to pass. So the garage door was slightly open and unlocked. Ted's Porsche was still in the driveway as Mark and Milton crept into the silent mansion. The air in the house was warm and stale. They moved through the ground floor with no sign of Ted. Mark led the way up the soft carpeted stairs, all the while yelling out for Ted. At the top landing, Mark entered the master bedroom and froze. He was horrified to find that his worst fears had been brutally confirmed. Blood was everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. On the white walls, on the white sheets, pools of it covering the beige rug. In the middle of all of the slippery gore was Ted's naked body twisted into the fetal position. Ooh. Gasping for breath, Mark and Milton left the home. The sun was setting beautifully through the trees and in nearby manses, wealthy and famous people like Jerry Seinfeld, who had a compound nearby, were drinking wine and prepping dinner. None the wiser that bloody murder had come to their safe, affluent enclave. Enclave. (laughs) That's also a rich person word. Enclave. Enclave. Foyer. You could just keep you could just keep that in because I that I screwed it up because clearly I don't live in an enclave. Oh, right. You do have a foyer though. I do have a foyer right now. Oh. 
Mark called 911 and muttered the words that made it real. Ted Ammon has been murdered. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ted is dead. Oh, no. I do say that later. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Spoiler alert. Over the next two years, questions would be asked, secrets revealed, and accusations made. But at that moment, Mark knew the murder could be traced back to the most obvious source. Ted's spiteful ex, Generosa Rand Ammon. So she's suspect numero uno over here. Yeah, right out the bat. Right out the bat. I mean, if you're having a nasty divorce and there's millions and millions of dollars at stake, yeah. you're always going to be the number one. So let's go back in time and talk about a wee little Generosa and see if we also believe she could possibly be connected to this brutal crime. Generosa Joe Mary Rand was born on March 22nd, 1956 to a mother named Babe and an absent father in name who turned out to not be Generosa's biological father at all. Oh. In fact, Generosa's birth was the result of a one-night stand Babe had had with an Italian soldier who had shipped into Long Beach, California, near where Babe lived for just one night. Whoa, scandalous. Super scandalous. The Italian soldier was named Generoso. Wow. Uh-huh. And though he promised to stay in touch, once Babe revealed her condition, he never responded to a single letter begging for support or acknowledgement. Condition. Her pregnant condition. <laughs> but then she still named the baby Generosa after him. I wonder if, like, she thought maybe he'd come back someday and she'd be like, look, I named her after you, you know? Yeah, or she might have really liked it. She might have really had a good time that night, wanted to be reminded of it. I guess so. Yeah, it sounds like they had a good time. But what a rat bastard, huh? Yeah, I think like when you just said, you said for support or acknowledgement, like the like you really can't. Any acknowledgement. Come on, dude. Yeah, like you can't even say like, I recognize that we had that night of passion that resulted in a child, you know? Yeah. Bastardle. Is that what it is in Italian? I don't know. You're the Italian one. For bastard? Yeah. Bastardle? <laughs> That's what I'm going with. Okay. Bastardy. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, she was named for her extremely absent father, but she was given the last name of her mother's current husband. Okay. She was not the father. Okay. So it seems like it was somewhat of a open secret between her and that husband because they broke up for good and didn't get back together after that. So he must have known. Okay. Babe was kind of a mess. She had already been married twice and Generosa was the fourth of four kids she had had with three different men. Babe had addiction issues and she'd already lost custody of her two eldest children. So after the divorce, she took Dolly, who was her third born, and Generosa to Oceanside, California, to live in a triplex owned by Babe's brother, Al, in 1960. Okay. So basically, like, they had one floor, one floor was rented out, and one floor was Al's. Okay. During this time, Babe had one of the only jobs that she would really hold. Like, she was only very sporadically employed. And so she was either working or she would, like, elect to stay with various boyfriends. So the girls were either left with a teenage British nanny named Beryl, or they were left to fend for themselves. Due to the lack of supervision, at the age of only five or six, Generosa was molested by a close family friend or relative. Uh, yeah. And this went on for months, if not years. So almost the entirety of my research came from Almost Paradise by Kiernan Crowley, 
which was a fantastic book and great read. And then I did use like a Daily Mail article from February 2012 and an article from True Crime Daily to kind of find out what what was going on with the characters, the people now. Those are my sources. So Karen and Crowley does not name names about who may have molested Generosa because apparently like she never went on record saying exactly as it it couldn't be corroborated, but it seems like it was something that deeply affected her and did absolutely happen. He just didn't want to name who it was potentially. So all he said was that it was like a man that was said to be like a father to her. Oh, wow. So devastating. Generosa was also only 10 years old when Babe died of breast cancer. Oh, no. Yeah. And she had been like ignoring the breast cancer for a while and it spread to her brain. So she had to watch her mother like just disappear, essentially. So already Generosa has had a terrible time in life. And it only gets worse because this like starts a period of the unwanted child being flung from caretaker to caretaker. Wow. There's just nothing that's solid in her life at all. After her mother's death, she also, at the age of only 10, finds out the truth about her paternity. So her mother, I guess, had always been really terrible to her. And she said when her older sister told her, like, by the way, you're not my dad's kid, you are somebody else's. She was like, oh, I guess that's why my mom always hated me because I was this like living reminder of this failed love affair, this bastard. It made her have so much anger at such a young age for all the ways her mother had failed her. Okay. And she basically at like 10 years old was telling people like, I'm glad she's dead. I'm glad she's dead. And she just like turned like, very vicious, angry and vicious and was like, she's like dead to me. She never wants to talk about her mother. She's like, I'm just moving forward. And this would actually like become a hallmark of how Generosa looked at people. Like if you crossed her, if you did something that she thought was betrayal, she would like burn that bridge and never look back. Oh man. Yeah. And at such a young age to already have that attitude is so terrifying. You know, it's so sad. It's really sad. 10 is not the age that you want to be Already that cynical. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Generosa first went to live with her uncle and his new wife, Marge, and his kids from his first marriage, but she was difficult and could not get along with the other children. Kieran Crowley in his book reported that during this period, the smallest thing would set her off and she would lash out viciously. She seemed secretive, devious, manipulative, and an outsider. She was just nasty, and she was going to get what she wanted and get it her way or not at all. Generosa's cousin, Al Jr., who was two years older, thought that Generosa was scary and learned how to stay out of her way. Wow. Yeah. So basically, it was not working out for her at her uncle's house because of all those reasons. But luckily, Marge had a kind and wealthy friend who was willing to take the troubled preteen in. Now, suddenly, Generosa was truly living the high life. This family had a mansion in Laguna Beach, as well as a stunning eight-bedroom house and horse ranch in the Santa Inez Valley. Wow. I mean, they were rich. Yeah, so she learned to ride, and she even, like, became an equestrian. She learned how to show jump. She definitely, they had a pool, of course, and she got accustomed to a certain lifestyle that for the rest of her life, she'd be like, this is what I deserve, you know? 
In late 1967, though, the foster parents had had enough with the rebellious girl. She was demanding and prone to rages. Stop. And she frightened their other children. You can't keep it together to keep that life? Yeah, which is shitty for her. I feel like she would go on to regret that later on. So they were just basically worn out and they're like, why are we even doing this? Because they had just done it out of the kindness of their heart, you know? Oh my God. And so they sent Generosa to live with her eldest half-sister, Mary Therese, who went by Terry. And Terry had taken in her other sister, Dolly, after their mother's death. And Terry lived in Santa Clara, California, which would later become part of Silicon Valley. But in the 60s, it was still mostly fruit orchards, which was what Silicon Valley was, you know? Though the family was comfortable, they certainly did not have the wealth of the prior family she had stayed with. And Generosa made impossible material demands and complained bitterly about not having horses or a pool. (laughs) And this was already like untenable for any family, but Terry suffered from bipolar disorder, which is, you know, their sisters. So there are some psychiatrists that seem to think that maybe Generosa suffered from bipolar as well. But she was never properly assessed, you know? So when Terry was going through a depressive state, it seemed like Generosa would specifically antagonize her and, like, make things worse when she was that vulnerable. Not cool. Not cool. And to the point that her husband was like, we can't have Generosa living in our house. Like, she's making you worse, especially with your illness, you know? So once again, Generosa gets moved in July of 1970 when she's 14. Think about all these different households she's had by the time she's 14. Generosa was sent to live with distant family relatives in Los Angeles who had had teenage girls themselves. So they had a 16 and an 18-year-old. And now Generosa had to share a room with a 16-year-old, which of course she was upset about. And she complained about the house and the schools being beneath her and was generally just terrible again. But at this point, the mother in this family was like, look, kid, we're the end of the line. There is no one else who will take you. Yeah, foster home is next. Yep, that's it. You're going into the foster care system next. So you get your shit together. You get your smart young lady, get good grades, follow our rules and be happy with your situation or else you're going into foster care. And shockingly, I think that this direct approach, this tough love approach actually worked for Generosa. She snapped together and she ended up doing really well in high school after this. You know, I think with somebody who's pushing the boundaries and pushing buttons, who's hurting, sometimes they need somebody really hard and really direct. I mean, if it's still like coming from a place of love, it's still Mm -hmm. positive, you know, it's just firmer. Yes, exactly. She just needed somebody who set firm boundaries, you know? The bright and beautiful blonde became a popular student with good grades and was admitted to the University of California, Irvine after graduation, where she studied art. She also proved to have a talent and obsession with money and money management. Generosa worked the books at her Uncle Al's furniture store where she put herself through college and proved exceptionally adept at it. She was good at numbers for somebody who's an art student. In 1981, she graduated college and decided to move to New York City, where she intended to make it big in the art world and become a wealthy woman in the biggest city in the world. LOL, intended on becoming a wealthy woman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, think about 1981. She's graduating college. She's a young, hot California blonde in the art world. She wants to make it in New York City. So funny. God, in New York in the 80s, too. I know. But of course, one needs a job that actually pays while they follow their passion, or at least they should have one. 
So Generosa became a high-end realtor where she rubbed elbows with scads of wealthy men looking for a nice home and maybe a nice wife as well. (laughs) It was in this capacity that she would meet her future husband, the tragically doomed Theodore Ammon. So let's talk about Ted. Ted is a doll. Ted was born in August of 1949 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the second of two kids born to steel executive father Bob and homemaker Betty Lee Ammon. Ted truly was a golden child. He himself would describe his upbringing as leave it to beaver perfect. It was an extremely happy 1950s home with two parents who loved each other and their kids. Ted and older sister Sandy, who were like best friends and stayed friends for the rest of their life. I mean... We never get this. We have like never once on this show have we got like a family that just loves each other so much. They're like, good. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Everyone's happy. Everyone's loving. It's shocking. Like what? This is like, this is the 1%, not because they have money, just because no one's this happy. (laughs) Eventually, Bob's job transferred the family to East Aurora, New York, a charming town just outside of Buffalo, where Ted grew into a handsome, bright teenager who excelled in school as well as baseball, swimming, and football. Like he, he lettered in all of those sports. Jesus. He was accepted to Bucknell in 1967, where he completed a double major in arts and economics. An interesting combination. Sounds similar. Sounds like somebody else's interests. (laughs) After graduation, Ted followed a girlfriend to San Francisco, where the city stuck, but the girl did not. He entered into an international banking training program with Bank of America, where he met a co-trainee named Randy Day. Randy exemplified Ted's type and hell, she might have invented it because this is his first like serious, serious love. She was really, really, really smart, super competitive. Like she was like above him in the program, basically. Like she was going toe to toe with all these guys, you know, and she was also a beautiful blonde. So Randy and Ted fell madly in love. And upon graduation from the program, uh, Randy was offered a job in London. So Ted followed. The couple married in 1978, eventually moving back to New York City, where Ted took and passed the bar exam on his first try without ever going to law school. Isn't that insane? The New York bar exam is also, I worked in like legal sales for a little while in California and everyone told me that New York and California have the most impossible bar exams. Wow. And I knew people who had gone to law school and had taken it like three times and failed it three times and had to keep trying. Like it is so hard to pass. Wow. That's impressive. He's a genius. And they also said that he was somebody that was like always thinking and always creating and always like coming up with ideas. And they said like 99 of them were terrible, but he'd have one genius idea. Yeah, yeah. But he just like kept throwing the spaghetti against the wall and his brain was always moving and he loved challenges and puzzles and things to figure out, you know? Wow. So Ted went to work for a prestigious law firm and the two young power players began to drift apart due to each person putting in hellishly long hours and they both prioritized their career over the marriage. You know, they're young. So Randy and Ted divorced in 1983, but they would remain lifelong friends. Following the divorce, Ted was on the rebound both professionally and personally looking into jumping ship to a new firm that specialized in leveraged buyouts of corporations. 
So a leveraged buyout or LBO is a particularly aggressive approach to mergers and acquisitions. It's basically a bigger company that uses another company's debt in order to take over them and not always with their approval. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is like being a corporate raider. This is like that era of like Wall Street where everything was really, really, really vicious, you know? So Ted thought that the work was interesting and challenging, and he began to work for one of the most well-known in the space called Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, a.k.a. KKR. He also needed a new apartment. Responding to a real estate listing, he set up an appointment to view an apartment on the Upper East Side with a realtor named, Uh you guessed it, Generosa Rand. (laughs) Yep. However, on the day of the viewing, he found himself swamped with work and he blew the appointment off. Generosa called him at his office the next day and ripped him a new asshole for being so disrespectful of her time. Stop. Yeah, she was like, you are unbelievably rude. I can't believe you wasted my time. I spent two hours waiting at that apartment. You need to make it up to me. Oh my God. She went there. So he was surprised. Like he was like totally like taken aback and maybe a little turned on. (laughs) What a firecracker. Exactly. Ted was like, damn. And he was already like making a lot of money working for this very prestigious firm. And, you know, she's a realtor and she's like, your, your time isn't worth more than my time. So, you know, generous is a lot of things at this moment. I'm like, good for you. You know? Yeah, for sure. So Ted apologized and he set up a new appointment. His intrigue in the ball-busting realtor deepened when he met Generosa in person. She was not only a tough cookie, but also a beautiful, sexy blonde, just his type. So Generosa, like there's pictures of her when she's young and she looks very much like long hair, like when she's in the 70s, very much like a California blonde. Okay. But then later on, she styles her hair in the very like, 90s almost momish style like the like overly hairsprayed like bob okay and and she starts looking more like a waspy new york socialite which is you know obviously where we're going with this you know is it <laughs> yeah so there is there's almost like like a less kind like princess die version of her almost like the way she dressed herself and the way she was styling herself. It was almost like similar. Like clearly that was like the fashion icon of the times. And she was like trying to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. And Ted, he's, he's really handsome. He's dark haired. He's tall. He looks like every dad from a 19, like early nineties sitcom. Like he looks like Patrick Duffy from, you know, step-by-step, combined with Bob Saget from Full House. Like he's like, yeah, he's like, if you mesh those guys together, kind of like that look, he looks really nice. And, but he also like, Nathaniel thought he totally looked like a corporate raider. If you could imagine him in like an 80s power suit, you know? Okay. (laughs) So Ted didn't end up taking the apartment, but he did score a girlfriend that day. The two would later joke that they had their first fight before they ever met. Oh God. I don't know if that's a good way to start it out. So at first, 34-year-old Ted and 27-year-old Generosa had a lot of fun together. Though Ted was a lawyer, he had a great appreciation for art and architecture, and he did believe that Generosa's artwork, which included paintings, photography, and sculpture, was good. She enjoyed his passion for his work and that he appreciated, like, the things she liked, and she, of course, liked the finer things in life that he was able to provide for her. 
So the two were so in love right out of the gate that they moved in together only one month after meeting. That doesn't usually go well. That is a love murder red flag on the field. The love murder red flag, but it's also a Jesse. <laughs> Don't be a Jesse, guys. I, I mean, it worked out for me, but hopefully, oh, knock on wood, it has been working out for me. But yeah, I, I married my husband five months in. So don't do what I did. So even though they were, you know, obviously committed really, really fast, Generosa wanted even more. The couple spent the Christmas of 1983 together with Ted's family, and everyone gasped when Ted presented Generosa with a little velvet box that contained earrings. Did Generosa lose it? Yeah, Generosa was pissed. And actually, even like his sister was like, dude, you don't get on one knee with a little velvet box that contains earrings. Wait, he got on one knee? They said he like presented it to her in a way that seemed like to everybody it was going to be an engagement. I don't know if he like was down on one knee or how he gave it to her. Wow. Uh-huh. So she was extremely hurt and she felt humiliated because this was in front of his family. So after stewing on it for a couple months in February, she gave him an ultimatum. She was like, you either propose or I'm out of here because I'm not going to go through that again. And Ted was not ready to commit to marriage. So he's like, cool, you can walk. Kind of got to give it to him, though. I feel like peer pressure should not ever work in a marriage situation. No, I I don't think you should propose because of an ultimatum. No. So less than a year after their breakup, however, the two serendipitously ran into each other at, this is so cinematic. This doesn't even seem real. They ran into each other at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Like, doesn't that seem like a TV show or something? Well, they both love art and math. (laughs) That's true. So after they ran into each other, they resumed their love affair. But Generosa didn't budge this time. This time she was like, before I even let you put it in, you better know that we're on track to get married. And this time he acquiesced. He like called his sister Sandy and he's like, guess what? I'm back together with Generosa. And actually Sandy, his sister really liked Generosa and was like, good, good for you. And he's like, yeah, but I'm in trouble. (laughs) I mean, this time she wants the ring. And he's like, and Sandy was like, oh, God, just proposed to her, Ted. You're crazy about her, you know? Yeah, if you're back together with someone, it's like... So the two married in a lavish ceremony at an Episcopal church on Fifth Avenue on February 2nd, 1986. After a fallout with her uncle and the bridges she had burned back in California, Generosa barely had any guests of her own at the wedding. Yikes. Yep. Al Jr.'s wife, Sally, had been Generosa's best friend, but at the time of the wedding, she was heavily pregnant and her doctor strenuously recommended she not fly. Despite Ted sending a private jet to pick up the couple and deliver them in style, Sally stayed home. When Al Jr. arrived alone, Generosa reportedly threw a fit. According to Almost Paradise, she said, You and Sally have shown me disrespect, Generosa screamed at him. I'm a New York socialite now, and you can't disrespect me. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. Al Jr. was blown away. He was her only family member coming to her wedding. He could not believe his ears. She was nuts. He had had it. I will show you disrespect when I leave this room. He shot back. I'm going to leave the door open. He turned and stormed out the door. He got a cab back to his hotel, packed, and went back to the airport and got on the first flight home. The wedding went on without him, a lovely affair with the bride and groom who are obviously deeply in love and sincere that their love, as they put in their wedding vows, would last as long as they both shall live. 
On the flight home, Al Jr. fumed about Generosa. For some unknown reason, he decided she wanted to close off her life before Ted by getting rid of everyone who had known her then. Unlike Ted, she was obviously a snob who felt she was better than her own family. He knew that she had had a horrible childhood, but that was no excuse for her behavior. Al Jr. didn't know her real reasons, but he no longer cared. It would be a cold day in hell before he ever spoke to her again. He felt bad for Ted, though. He was a nice guy who didn't know what he was getting into. Yeah, it seems like he... Mm-hmm. A little bit of foreshadowing right there. A little bit. I always think it's a little bit of a red flag when someone doesn't have any close friends or even a single family person they like. No, it's never good. Never good. Never good. And like, I totally understand that there's like a million reasons why you have to cut people out of your life, whether it's somebody who was a friend or whether, you know, it's a family member who, you know, was abusive to you in some capacity, but like no one. It's a definite red flag. There's a few red flags already. Yes. There's a lot of red flags on the field here. So even though she had no friends, apparently, Generosa now had everything else she ever wanted. She had a handsome, rich husband who adored her and supported her artistic ambitions. The couple bought a townhouse at Fifth Avenue and 75th Street on the Upper East Side and were now moneyed enough to retain a limo and driver, housekeeper, butler, and private Whoa, chef. Whoa, money. Dude, that's not cheap in Manhattan money. either. Money, money, money. Generosa had a nearly bottomless budget to procure art and redecorate and renovate her living spaces. Ted also paid for a huge Soho artist law for Generosa. But despite Ted's money and connections, her career never really took off. So they said in the book that she did actually sell a copper wire sculpture to Sony for its office building. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. In general, like some of her like attempts at like modern art was like buying a Chrysler and wrapping it in plastic wrap, like saran wrap. Are you serious? Yeah, that was like her art. And people were like, this is unoriginal. Like the New York art scene did not respond to it respond to it it also was like clearly like she bought a chrysler because her husband had that amount of money and then just wrapped it in saran wrap you know it was like a very privileged woman playing at being you know an Uh, an artist artist. Yeah. yeah exactly so instead of like when that clearly wasn't happening for her anymore she really like threw herself into renovating, redecorating, like learning about designing. And she loved to beautify their living spaces. And she really like did love Ted. And it seemed like she wanted to create this like perfect life for him. She wanted him to live in the perfect setting. She wanted to have the right art, the right things, you know? Okay. And this is also very much like the greed is good period of 80s New York. And Ted absolutely had a seat at the big boys table. KKR was known as an industry leader in LBOs and corporate raids. And Ted was involved in all the high level deals, including a $25 billion takeover of Nabisco in the fall of 1988. And that's like $25 billion in 1988. Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. At only 36, Ted was a multimillionaire. Wow. Unfortunately, with the good comes the bad, and the Ammons suffered some devastating blows in the next couple of years. First, Generosa was home during a burglary, which was essentially a home invasion. Yep. The robbers rang the doorbell, and Generosa thought it was her grocery delivery, so she buzzed them in, and these, like, masked robbers, like, bum-rushed her, and they ended up tying her up and gagging her with duct tape. And luckily, you know, she herself was left unmolested. Yeah, she's uh, lucky. 
she's extremely lucky, but they burglarized the entire place. They took like all of their valuables. They took her engagement ring and she was like deeply traumatized from this. This is, you know, very traumatic to have strangers tying you up in your own home and you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they went through that. And then secondly, the couple had terrible fertility issues. It took months and months for Generosa to even get pregnant. And when she did, it ended in an ectopic pregnancy. Oh, no. Yeah. So if you guys don't know, an ectopic pregnancy is when um, the fetus begins forming in the fallopian tube. And if it's not taken care of, it can explode the fallopian tube and even kill the mother. Ugh. So like after that, I don't know if she lost her fallopian tube. Sometimes they can save it. Sometimes they can't. But she needed surgery. And then they did fertility treatments after that. So they did like artificial inseminations and nothing was working. So they decided to go forward with adoption. And their grief actually bloomed into joy when they were matched with a pair of blue-eyed, blonde-haired boy-girl twins from Russia. No way. Yeah. So Alexa and Gregory, who would go later by Gregor Grego as he got older, were only two when the Ammons brought them home. In fact, like little Alexa from the orphanage had tuberculosis when they brought her oh home. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. The children were bright, curious, and loving, easily settling into their new life. And what a life it was. As far as being Russian orphans, you got to think that this is like winning the parental lottery. Seriously. They like literally like came home on like a private jet and like took a limo to their new house like on Fifth Avenue, you know? So insane. It's so insane. At this point, Ted was worth over $50 million. Oh my God. And this is in 1992. So $50 million was more like $94 million in today's money. Wow. So getting bored and tired of being a company man, Ted struck out on his own and he began his own company. People thought he was crazy because he was making so much money at KKR to leave. But he ended up doing amazingly. And at his peak, he was worth $400 million. Oh, my God, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Isn't that insane? Wow. Yeah. And it's really cute because he named his company Big Flower because it was the first English words that Grego said as a little boy when he saw sunflowers in the Hamptons. Oh. Yeah. So he was like very family oriented. So life was looking good for them. So the couple bought the 59 Middle Lane house in the Hamptons, which is in the East Hamptons, for a steal of $2.7 million. It was a fixer <laughs> upper. That was like a great deal to get it for 2.7. Wow. Yep. And Generosa took over renovations and landscaping, and she sunk over $3 million of work into the house. Obviously, Generosa was still suffering from PTSD from the home invasion. So she actually included a safe room in the building plans. Wow. So okay. there was like a children's playroom. And then there was like a false closet that had a safe room in it that would be like hard for anyone. to. Yeah, find. she's still scarred from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally understand why. And if you have the money to sink millions into a renovation, why not feel secure and yeah. protect yourself, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, that all sounds fine and dandy, but apparently Generosa was a nightmare to work for. Her architect talks about her screaming directly into his face about screws not being lined up properly. And I'm talking about oh like my God. the plates on like, you know, plugs and like light switches. Yeah. She wanted the screws that are in it to be perfectly vertical and line up with each other. And if one was even off center, 
in the many outlets of the house, she would lose her goddamn mind. Jesus. So crazy. And then here's another story from a landscaper who had the unfortunate experience of working with Generosa from Almost Paradise. Generosa wanted golden tulips for a flower bed out front. And as usual, she had an image chiseled in stone inside of her head of what the flowers would look like. She consulted with one landscape gardener, a guy who's pseudonymed as Tim in this book, who warned her, now, you know, tulips look like one shade in the morning light and a different shade in the evening light. Generosa said she knew that. She picked the exact shade of yellow she wanted and the gardener planted the 600 flowers. They were beautiful. That weekend, he drove up the Ammon driveway and caught a sight of a blur of exploding yellow in the newly planted flower bed. It was Generosa amid a sea of yellow, her yellow hair a mess, ripping out bunches of tulips by the roots in a frenzy like a madwoman and tossing them over her shoulders. They're the wrong shade, she screeched as she slaughtered the flowers. One person who heard of the bizarre scene was reminded of the Red Queen in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland who wanted to lop off heads because her roses were the wrong color. But in real life, it's not so funny. She ordered Tim to pay for the replacements I or mean, she would sue him. I didn't think it was funny in Alice in Wonderland either, to be honest. I was yeah. pretty terrified of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, the epitome of being unreasonable and terrifying. Yeah, like completely untethered. So can you believe she ordered this guy to pay for the replacements? Or she said she would sue him, mentioning the name of a large Manhattan law firm. Wow. After she had uprooted the flower bed, she next attacked the other tulips along the front fence. He would have to pay for those as well, she demanded. He'd warned her, he said, but his protests had fallen on deaf ears. Later, she also made him replace, again at his own expense, the trees by the front door because they did not produce the red berries she wanted. Wow. Just a nightmare. I mean, also, she has millions of dollars, like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And she is going after independent contractor landscapers who are trying to feed their families. Yep. That's fucked up. Yep. There's actually like 60 pages of stories of her being terrible to people in this part of the book, but we got to keep this podcast going. So I'm not going to get into it. Oh my God. Yeah. Like she was a nightmare. And she wasn't much better to her children. Another story that came from Almost Paradise was that one afternoon while Ted was away and another couple was over for lunch, Alexa grabbed a chocolate chip cookie. And she's like a little kid at this point. Despite being told by her mother not to have any before lunch, Generosa flew into a rage, grabbed Alexa and the bag of cookies and began shoving them into her daughter's mouth. As she force-fed Alexa, she screamed at her and asked sarcastically if she wanted more. Oh, my God. The startled guests stopped the force-feeding and wondered what was troubling their hostess so much that she would do such a sadistic thing to her own daughter. Oh, my God. She's doing this in front of people, too, which makes me think it had to be way worse behind closed doors. Totally. Soon, Generosa tired of just ordering around the help and her kids and began to meddle in Ted's business, getting involved with his contacts and adding her name and phone extension to his company directory. Every morning, she would grill him about his deals and offer unwelcome and unhelpful advice about how to go forward. She began making lists about just whom he should call or meet with. And if he didn't respond favorably, she would call his executive assistant to demand to add her to-dos to his schedule. (laughs) Crazy. 
So this was frustrating, time-consuming to deal with and humiliating for Ted that he's having to go back and forth with his executive assistant to be like, don't listen to my wife, you know? Yeah, yeah. By 1996, Ted was getting close to the end of his rope with Generosa's controlling ways and behavior. Over the next two years, the relationship devolved even further with Generosa now becoming paranoid that Ted was cheating on her. Oh my God. So they were at a school event for the like elementary age little kids and Ted is making small talk with another mother there. Like just chit chat as you do. You guys know if your parents like you have to, you know. And apparently Generosa approached the woman and loudly in front of like the entire like school meeting was like, stop flirting with my husband and like made a huge scene and ted was so embarrassed wouldn't you be that's horrible oh my god i can't even imagine i would crawl like inside of myself if nathaniel like made some bizarre scene of me chatting politely to a fellow parent oh my god yeah so for a long time it was simply paranoia ted wasn't cheating how However, as we know, as we know, these things kind of can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In 1998, Ted would eventually prove Generosa's suspicions correct when he struck up an affair with a woman pseudonymed in the book as Mary, a gorgeous, brilliant, blonde investment banker at a firm that did business with Ted. Yikes. He likes those like power blondes. Power blondes. Yes, that's the word for it. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Generosa went to a psychic who confirmed that Ted was being unfaithful. So when she like found this out, she went to Ted and she was like, the psychic told me you're cheating on me. But Ted, of course, denied it to her face. At this point, all day, every day was just fighting to the point that like coworkers who, you know, contributed to this book were like, literally, he would pick up the phone from her and have to hold it away from his ear because she was screaming so loudly and we could hear everything that was going on. Whoa. So Ted obviously was considering divorce at this point, but he was a little worried about how a contentious divorce would affect the children, especially with Generosa's known rage issues. And clearly he's worried there's a ton of money up for grabs. They didn't have a prenup. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. So- He dragged his feet on filing for divorce while he attempted to come up with a better solution. The situation was made much hairier when Ted's mistress, Mary, became pregnant with Ted's child. Stop. Yikes. So finally, Ted came up with a plan that he believed would allow him to have it all. From almost paradise, here is the maybe not so brilliant setup that he came to. After having fought a move there years earlier, Generosa had been hinting about moving to London. Ted could move to London with her and the kids and set up a business there as he had wanted to do years earlier. Mary would stay in New York and Ted could commute using business as an excuse. From Generosa's side of the Atlantic, everything would seem perfect. As long as she could not see what Ted was doing in New York, as long as there was an ocean between them. Of course, The plan would involve deception and subterfuge, things that Ted did not like, but he felt it was the best way for the moment. He was hardly the first husband to take the easy, self-serving path that allowed him to have his cake and eat it too. (laughs) At least until he was ready. Man, you could not get away with this in the social media era that we live in now. No, not at all. Not even a little bit. The first deception was soft-selling the idea to Generosa. He was able to rationalize his behavior because he had not definitely decided on divorce, Why hurt Generosa unnecessarily? Why upset the kids? 
the marriage could work. Maybe after a while, he would get Mary out of his system. You're having a baby, dude. You can't just get her out of your system. Dude. He told Generosa that they would buy a luxury flat in London and find a beautiful home in the countryside. It wouldn't be like the Hamptons with a social scene to be left out of. The Hamptons social scene didn't love Generosa. Okay. It would just be Generosa and Ted and the kids. She could get a new staff. And of course, she could gut and redo and furnish and landscape both properties, whatever she wanted, whatever the cost. (laughs) So Generosa is overjoyed at this plan. And she looks at it like a fresh start in their marriage. Like she doesn't know, obviously, there's an ongoing affair. She just thinks Ted wants a fresh start with her and they're going to rebuild. Okay. So Ted bought the family a huge flat in Knightsbridge and a completely insane country house. I mean, this is some Downton Abbey shit. (laughs) This is like when you buy a place that has a name. The estate was called Coverwood and it was a gigantic baronial stone manor set on 17 acres of landscaped English gardens and rolling hills in Surrey. It was in the Gothic style and over 11,000 square feet. Oh, it's like the pictures are crazy. It had 10 bedrooms. It had like game rooms. It had an art studio, koi ponds, greenhouse, stables, two tennis courts. I mean, everything. The kids were sent to a fancy English boarding school and Generosa hired a new staff, including housekeeper Kay Maine, who'd be loyal to her for the rest of her life. Things were looking up for the Ammons and Generosa plunked down a whopping $150,000 to celebrate Ted's birthday, his 50th birthday, to take nine other couples and themselves to Necker Island, which is Richard Branson's private island in the British Virgin Islands. Stop. 150 grand in the 90s. I was just going to say. Yeah, I don't even know. I didn't do the math on that one. So I don't even know, but it must be insane. Whoa. To the other couples, Generosa and Ted appeared happy and the trip seemed like a success. But appearances can be deceiving, as we well know. And Ted was still conducting his transatlantic love affair, now complete with a love child. So gossip soon began to fly when a friend of Generosa's ran into Ted on the Concord and... For some reason, this friend of Generosa's knew he was buying a townhouse and was like, hey, I heard that you're like buying the spot. And he was like, oh, shit, that's not for Generosa. He was buying it for Mary and their kid. So not knowing how to respond, he did not respond well. He just said, Generosa doesn't need to know about this. Let's keep this between us. And then changed his flight so he wasn't on the flight with the woman. Oh, I mean, you might as well just say you're guilty. Like you couldn't even come up with a better story. Wow. Uh So already like people in New York were like, oh, he's up to some shady shit. But the end finally came in August of 2000 when Generosa broke into Ted's locked desk in his study. So she thought (sighs) he was having an affair with his first wife, Randy Day. That was her suspicion because she had heard through the grapevine that he had had lunch with her. He was like seeing her when he was back in New York. But instead, she found a bill for a consultation with a London divorce attorney. Yeah. So I guess he was still thinking about it. She also found paperwork. Yeah. So she also found paperwork about buying the place on Fifth Avenue, the place that she had no knowledge about. Okay. So shady. He's caught. I mean, he's caught as hell. So understandably, in this case, like, Generosa gets pissed about a lot of stuff that you shouldn't get pissed about. This time, she was well within her rights to be fucking furious, you know? Yeah. I wonder, I see her like 
breaking open the desk with like a letter cutter, you know, like a letter cutter knife. (laughs) That's exactly how I pictured it as well. Yeah. So she did confront him and Ted denied an affair with Randy. It doesn't seem like he was having anything with her, but he could not and did not deny his relationship with Mary. So Generosa was furious and she actually beat him to the punch by filing for divorce first. She really wanted to make him pay. It was kind of like Ivana Trump said, like, don't get mad, get everything. Yeah. Which yeah. I love. Yeah. She was like, she was like, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going. I'm going to take everything that I possibly can from this man. So she started by demanding a residence back in New York City. And Ted bought her an eight-story townhouse at 10 East 87th Street near the park. Who wants an... I guess they'd have an elevator. But I was like, who wants eight flights of stairs? (laughs) Yeah, obviously an elevator. (gasps) They have like white doves (laughs) carry them. They're so rich (laughs) that they just have songbirds carry them by their clothes like Cinderella (laughs) up to every level. Little field mice all band together to carry them. Her plan was to do more like multi-million dollar renovations to the townhouse. She wanted to transform it into a futuristic Jetsons pad, which sounds hideous. Horrible. Is she going to put her Chrysler wrapped in saran wrap in there? I think that was like the look she was going for. While the renovations were ongoing, she moved herself and the twins into the nearby fancy Stanhope Hotel. Generosa was spending money like there was no tomorrow. Apparently, this woman she knew who had made a lot of money in her own divorce gave her the tip to spend (laughs) lavishly in the months leading up to the divorce so the court would have a record of what lifestyle she was accustomed to. Like she could say, these are my monthly expenses. This is what he has to provide. Yeah. So she was like putting millions into the renovation. She's also staying in the presidential suite of a fancy hotel that's on a park in Manhattan. Like even the shitty hotel rooms in in Manhattan are like $400 a night. Can you imagine what the presidential suite was? And she was staying there for months. She was living there and the kids each had their own room too. Wow. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, she hired herself a very costly staff. And this staff included an armed bodyguard for 50 grand a year. Her housekeeper was also paid 50 grand a year. Bruce, the chef, got the same. His companion, Stephen, the butler, who was Generosa's devoted assistant, received $100,000 a year in 2000. In addition, she paid another $50,000 for a driver, $30,000 for a gardener, and $60,000 in maintenance. And Coverwood, you know, which is a grand old English estate, cost at least 100 grand a year just to keep up. Wow. So insane. In court, she demanded $180,000 a month just in basic living expenses. That is truly insane. Yeah. So this was becoming rather scorched earth, this divorce at this point. One night while Ted was alone at the Hamptons Beach House, Generosa burst into his bedroom with her loyal butler, Stephen, flashing a camera as they attempted to catch Ted in bed with a lover. In flagrante. To their disappointment, the only bitch in Ted's bed was his dog. They caught nobody. He was a big dog lover. So embarrassing. So embarrassing. What's made it even worse, though, was that her kids were with her. She took her kids to this. They're sitting in the kitchen while they wait for their mom, who brought them in the middle of the night like a maniac to the Hamptons, to finish her, like, dirty spy work. 
yeah, the kids ended up like super duper gaslit and it sucks completely. Like she turned them against their father, forced them to like spy on him when he had visitation. So like if they were at their dad's and he like went out to go to the grocery store or something, they would be like going through his drawers and like taking pictures with their cell phones of documents for their mother. It was during this period that Generosa discovered a lump in her breast, just like her mother had at virtually the same age. Wow. Yeah, and weirdly, despite knowing how, like when her mother ignored the cancer, how it had ravaged her mother's body, Generosa ignored the advice to see a specialist and never went back to the doctor who diagnosed the lump. Why? Yeah, it's it's really weird. Like it's alluded to that she might've, gotten surgery to remove the lump at some point like maybe because she tells a future person that she was like having a breast augmentation when they suspect that maybe she actually did get it taken care of but there was no record of her having any like oncologist or ongoing cancer treatment which is really interesting around this time generosa's general contractor on the jetson's townhouse project introduced her to an unlicensed electrician named danny pelosi who would be handling all of the electric on the project Generosa was immediately taken with a younger, rough-talking, blue-collar electrician who was tall, dark, and handsome with a distinctly bad boy quality. Generosa was also exactly who Danny was looking for. So let's talk about Danny mother and Pelosi. I smell trouble. <laughs> a new actor to the scene. Danny was the fourth of six kids born to Korean War vet and banker Bob Pelosi and homemaker mother Janet. He grew up predominantly in Long Island in Center Mauritius, and he was described as an aggressive troublemaker from an early age. His dad, Bob, attempted to channel his aggression by signing him up for boxing, and he proved amazingly adept at it. Unfortunately, it didn't keep Danny out of trouble, and after his parents' divorce, Danny began acting out and was eventually kicked out of high school. They also talk about this like whole scene when he went to prom, he like tried to bring five different dates to it, like picking them up and dropping them off at certain times. Like he was trying to like get away with having five dates to prom. Like he thought he was some big shot. Ew. Yeah, he just sounds like he's always looking for the easy way out and he was not opposed to lying to get it, you know? The summer after what would have been Danny's senior year, he met a girl named Tammy at a party. Tammy had been arguing with her boyfriend, Ralph, when Danny witnessed Ralph slap Tammy across the face. Not Not cool. cool. So this actually looks good on Danny because Danny kicked the shit out of that guy. Apparently he tapped him on the shoulder and he's like, you want to try me? You know? And he like went after him. So they fought and Danny won. While Ralph was on the ground, Danny said, Ralph, from now on, she's dating me. And then turned to Tammy and said, hey, from now on, you're with me. Tammy protested at first, but she was quickly wooed and the two began dating. However, sometime after this, Danny was arrested for assault. And I think it was a different situation. I don't even think it was Ralph. I feel like being a knight in shining armor would be to beat the shit out of Ralph and then say, are you good? Not forcing the woman to then be with you. 100%. That's just more. Also, she probably was scared. Like she just watched him beat the crap out of somebody and she had just been abused herself. And the guy's like, I am caveman. Now you're mine. You know, I'd be scared. Oh my Uh, God. Danny's everywhere. But yeah, he was arrested for assault and sent to jail for 20 days. When he got out of jail, he found Tammy's father and grandfather waiting for him, like at the gate. And they said to him, Tammy's pregnant. Are you going to do the right thing? Shit. Uh Uh-huh. So that's how Tammy and Danny found themselves married in March of 1982 when they were only 19 years old. 
Yikes. So the, yeah, the young, that's another red flag is when you get married in your teens. Yep. The young couple moved into Tammy's parents' basement and Danny got a job as a laborer on a construction site to support his new family. Unfortunately, he suffered a back injury while on site and became addicted to pain pills. Ugh. Over the next decade, Danny would incur like literally too many DUIs to even talk about and assault charges. And he would struggle heavily with his addiction issues, not just pills, but also booze. Tammy and Danny would be forced to go on welfare and Danny collected a rap sheet about as long as my arm. Eventually, Tammy, who would later go on to become an addiction specialist, convinced Danny to go to rehab. And amazingly, it did stick for nine whole years. Okay, I thought you were going to say nine months. And I was like, Ugh. no, nine years is Great. a good stretch. Yep. Unfortunately, he was trying to get a job with this contractor. And it was like the most money, this like lucrative wiring job he had to offer. And he told Danny that he didn't hire men he couldn't drink with. What? Yeah. So I don't know if this guy knew about Danny's history with addiction, but he totally, you know, contributed to Danny. Like only Danny can blow his own sobriety, obviously, but he contributed it because Danny just said, line him up. And that night he drank shots of tequila and Budweiser beer and he totally fell off the wagon. And that same night that he fell off the wagon, he was arrested once more for a DUI. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I get the guys probably saying like, I only hire guys I can drink with as in like, I only hire guys that I can like shoot the shit with. I can shoot the shit with, I yeah. can trust yeah. that they can be my bro. Like, I don't know if I'm Danny sure disclosed if he was like, his status. Yeah. Oh God, it's just terrible. So a year after that debacle, he and Tammy were on the outs Ugh. and the family was in terrible debt. I mean, he was now boozing again and doing drugs. No. So- yeah, he began to go into Manhattan to try to get like, you know, obviously the highest paying jobs that he possibly could to dig his family out of this hole. And as he did, he began to fantasize about landing a rich woman. After all, he cheated all the time with other women on Tammy, but got nothing out of it. So as he was like going into Manhattan with a bunch of other guys on his crew, he told his pals, there's a woman in here who's paying those big rents who's single and she's going to be gorgeous and I'm going to find her. Wow. Within a few short weeks on the job, Danny had landed that rich woman he wanted and Generosa had got herself a young stud with a tool belt. Like they talk about like how she like made him wear a tool belt to bed and stuff. Oh my God. He's like 10 years younger than her just about. Yes. Yeah, so he's like a hot little piece. Yeah, and I think Ted was like seven years older than her. Like, not a big deal, but like between the two men, that's 17 years. Yeah, so like you go from one type of guy to young, hot stud, you know? Oh my God, so funny. So funny. So Generosa also put Danny up at the Stanhope as well as his entire crew. She said that she didn't want them having to go back to Long Island every night. So now on Ted's dime, she is putting up an entire crew of men in this hotel. Wow. Yep. So Generosa got tongues wagging when she brought Danny to the opera and other high society events. And it seemed like she specifically wanted Ted to find out as she was introducing Danny to their mutual friends. Soon, Danny was living like a kept man with Generosa footing the bill for everything and Danny having the run of her hotel suite, like ordering room service, buying designer suits and any sort of like toy or car he wanted, driving her fancy cars and like basically living as like the Lord of the Manor when they're in the Hamptons together. Wow. 
Yeah. So he is living the high life and Generosa was just getting a kick out of spending Ted's money on her young lover. Also, poor Tammy is just like out of the picture at this point. I know. I was going to say, is Danny like staying sober or is he drinking and partying too? Oh, he's drinking and partying every single night with Generosa. They're getting lit together. Like the Stanhope Hotel became like their spot. Wow. And they would just like drink into the night. Like, you know, when Nanny is taking care of the kids or whatever. And I guess Tammy actually like almost didn't mind this because for the first time he was giving her money. Like the, at least they were financially set. Okay. Because he was getting lots and lots of money from Generosa and then he was actually giving it to his family. Good, so, good, good, good. so she was like, you know what? He's providing for us. Like that's like the least I can ask for at this point, you know, like at <sighs> least like he's not leaving us high and dry, you know? Yeah. As the divorce escalated, both sides hired private investigators to get the dirt on one another. Generosa had Danny and one of his security system pals install a secret rapid eye video surveillance system in the Hamptons house. So this is how it's described in Almost Paradise. The concealed rapid eye video cameras hidden inside burglar alarm system motion detectors at the corner junctures of ceilings and walls took video images that could be viewed live or recorded from a laptop computer anywhere in the world where there was a telephone line. It transmitted and received instructions over Ted's fax line. Once it was hooked up, it was able to record and send pictures for up to a full year using its hard drive memory. Danny had John discreetly install a complete $12,000 system in the beach house with eight hidden cameras inside and one camera outside. Ted, of course, had no idea that whenever he was in the East Hampton house, he was under constant surveillance. Wow. So creepy. When Ted arrived, not okay. When Ted arrived and shut off the burglar alarm with his own subcode, John would notify Danny that Ted was in the house. Wow. They also knew when he left because although Ted often failed to set the burglar alarm when he was there, he always armed it when he left. So they began to obsessively watch and record every moment that Ted spent in his home, even watching him have sex with his girlfriends. Ew. Yeah, they even talked about how like Danny was on the like construction site at Generosa's townhouse and opened it up to let the other man in the crew watch one of Ted's girlfriends give him a blowjob. Oh, my God. And they had no idea. Whoa. Isn't that terrible? The rapid eye unit was housed in a bread box sized metal box hidden behind a wall inside the secret safe room. So we're talking about you go in through a closet, there's a secret safe room, and then there's a secret panel in in the wall in the secret safe room. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no way that Ted was going to be able to find this. It's like the Russian doll. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. So Ted's PIs caught Danny driving without a license, as obviously his had been taken away after all the DUIs. And Danny and Generosa having sex right next to the pool while the children were in the house watching <gasps> TV. Ew. <sighs> Ew. Ew. <gasps> they could have walked out at any moment. Oh, no. Nah. Okay. No. So, of course, Ted's PI also uncovered Danny's rap sheet And I think that would be very disconcerting as a parent to be like the person who is watching my children and driving them around has been convicted of several assault charges and DUIs. Yeah, no. Wouldn't like that. Wouldn't like that one bit. Would not allow that at all. No. While tensions were high and lawyers were attempting to settle the increasingly contentious divorce, Danny purchased a taser. So he's getting a weapon. 
here's some background on <laughs> what a taser is and what Danny was doing with it. So this is from Almost Paradise. A taser is a plastic gun with a battery instead of bullets. It explosively fires two darts using air pressure. The darts are attached to thin wires that remain attached to the taser and dig into the clothing and skin of the target. The shooter then pulls the trigger to deliver 50,000 volts of muscle-convulsing electricity. Ugh. It is incredibly painful and completely immobilizes the person getting zapped. And then some models also have two metal spikes so that the person can like use it as a stun gun, you know, and just deliver it right to their body. So once the weapon is fired, new dart cartridges must be loaded in the taser in order for it to work remotely again. When Danny got this new toy, he brought it to the townhouse job site while the workmen were still there. He was itching to test it, but had no intention of inflicting pain on himself. The taser also worked without firing the darts if the barrel of the weapon was pressed against the skin and the trigger was pulled. So that's basically like if you use those two points that I talked about, you know. Danny asked for a guinea pig, but no one stepped forward. He whipped out his roll of cash. Of course, who's going to volunteer for this? So he peeled off a $20 bill and waved it in the air. Still no takers. When he got up to 100, one crew member stepped up and snatched the bills. Danny touched his arm with the device and pulled the trigger. The burly workman yelped and backed off. It hurt and made his whole arm numb. Danny was hot to test the darts. He (gasps) offered the worker more money to take a full hit with the zapper, but the man was not interested. Of course, one guy wanted 200, but Danny thought it was too much. He later watched a video demonstration of someone getting the full taser with the darts. The victim twitched and crumpled into a heap on the floor. The guy was totally helpless and he had only had one zap. With the darts, the victim continued to receive agonizing shocks for some time while the user stood safely out of reach. He couldn't defend himself. He was helpless. Foreshadowing. This is sadistic. Despite all the animosity, even Generosa was tiring of warring with Ted. On Thursday, October 11th, 2001, Generosa and Ted's attorneys met to hammer out a settlement. Generosa would be awarded $24 million and her Jetsons townhouse. What? How could you want more than that? That's ridiculous. Who could need more than that? No one. No one. All expenses related to the children would be paid by Ted, even though they had split custody too. So she doesn't even have to use that money to pay for the kids. Oh my God. Just take the money and move on, lady. Generosa reluctantly accepted this offer, but was deeply resentful of losing the English country estate and the Hamptons house, especially the Hamptons house. She is not very generous. Uh. (laughs) Generosaurus. No, she's not. So all parties agreed to meet up again in two weeks' time when all the papers were drawn up to make it official. Ted thought that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, though he was a little concerned when daughter Alexa burst into tears on one of their visits, saying, I'm worried mom hates you so much she's going to kill you. Stop. Mm-hmm. And Ted assured her that that would never happen. He equally assured friends and family that urged him to get a bodyguard. His sister... And her husband and, like, his his partner, Mark, who we mentioned at the beginning, everyone was like, dude, she might actually try to kill you. Get a bodyguard. And he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. With a divorce so close to being settled, Ted drove down to the Hamptons at midday on Saturday, October 20th, 2001, to enjoy a last crisp fall weekend at the beach house before he put it on the market. Ugh. 
When he punched in the security code, John at the security company beeped Danny. Ted relaxed, reading the papers and playing with his dogs. Later on that night, he entertained Mary in an intimate manner. Mary now had a live-in boyfriend, so they were still conducting an affair, despite now Ted being single. Oh, my God. <laughs> Guys. Guys, get it, get it together. together. <laughs> oh my God. So that same night, Jenna Rosa and Danny argued about her not wanting to attend Danny's cousin's wedding that Sunday because Jenna Rosa didn't get along with Danny's father, who would be in attendance. Danny's father sounded like a really good guy who was very perplexed to how he ended up with having such a terrible son. And like, he was very like much like Danny was like waving money around and acting like a big shot and like buying things with Generosa's money. And his dad's like, you didn't earn that. And she didn't even earn it. Like you got, you're acting like you're like somehow better than everybody now because you have some money, but none of you earned it, you know? <gasps> and so Generosa was very like, insulted by this attitude she she expected everyone to like kiss the ring you know Unreal. and so she hated danny's dad so she refused to go to the wedding and supposedly danny drove out to stay with the sister in long island for the night before the wedding he stayed up late watching television with his 20 year old nephew meanwhile ted went out to dinner alone at a restaurant and afterwards he went for a walk along a beach he called mary and left her a message when she didn't pick up He told her he had been at Two Mile Hollow Beach and he said kind of like offhandedly like, oh, it might be a gay beach. Maybe I should like move on, you know? I don't want to give some guys the wrong idea, you know? So he returned home where he closed the door behind him, but he didn't lock it. And this is what they're surmising because later the door was found open. Okay. And clearly there wasn't any break-in, but if it had been Danny, you know, Generosa would have given him a key. So they say there just wasn't any break-in, but people did say that he was prone to not locking the door. Like that was a habit of his. And this is a very, very safe area. So maybe he wasn't used to it. He did go to bed naked as he always had and he turned out the light. And many of his like ex-paramours and girlfriends said he just always slept naked. So that was just like his normal thing. Love it. (laughs) Right? Get after it. Feels good against the sheets. So at 2 a.m., someone logged onto the Rapid Eye program with a laptop computer. After 21 minutes without any sign of activity, the observer remotely shut off the entire spy camera system and logged off. After having discovered Ted's body and the murder, the investigators reconstructed the events of the night based on the evidence and the autopsy. So here's what they think happened. A man entered 59 Middle Lane without having to break in, wearing gloves and coveralls. They know he was there to murder Ted and it was not a robbery gone wrong because on the kitchen counter in plain sight was $2,000 in cash and Ted's Porsche keys. So obviously a robber would have taken that. Yeah. The man unrolled a plastic tarp at the base of the stairs over a Persian carpet. Had the cameras been on, they certainly would have caught the murderer in action. But like I said, they had already been remotely turned off. In his hands were a stun gun and some type of club that would be used to bludgeon Ted. He approached the bedroom where Ted lay sleeping and vulnerable. Without hesitation, the intruder jabbed Ted's neck with the two metal points of the stun gun and gave him a full charge. As Ted came to from his slumber into a living nightmare, he attempted to fight back. The murderer used the bludgeoning weapon and they don't know. They say like at different times that it could be like a poker or like a crowbar type thing. Oh my God, horrible. 
Yep, and began hitting Ted as hard as possible, shattering bones in his arms as he held them up in self-defense. Ugh. This is truly a worst nightmare scenario. You're sleeping in your bed and you're defenseless and somebody just attacks you. Yeah. Didn't even give him a fighting shot. He's naked and they stunned him, you know? Yeah, that's not okay. That's like not a fair fight. Yep. At this juncture, Ted's dogs were roused and attempted to stop the intruder who tased the dogs as well. Knocking them into submission, Ted was attempting to sit up and flee, so the man hit him with the stun gun once more, and though Ted's legs were rubber, he still attempted to stagger out of the room. The man hit him over and over again in a blind rage, knocking the injured Ted to the ground and bashing his head in with the poker or club. So the stun gun doesn't need to, like, recharge? You can just, like, keep firing it? I guess so, or, like, he's just hitting him in between. That's crazy. All in all, Ted received more than 30 blows to his body. Oh, my God. And they said it was probably in a matter of only three to four minutes. I mean, he had no shot. Ted was dead. Satisfied with his work, the killer rinsed his weapon and coveralls off in the master bathroom shower. He then went through Ted's study and the playroom and opened the closet. He then stepped through the concealed door to the hidden safe room. He knew exactly where to knock out the wall panel under the eaves to the right of the door. He pulled out pink fiberglass insulation behind the wall and removed the rapid eye control unit that had recorded the remote shutoff event. The killer brought the metal box containing the computer hard drive back down the stairs. The killer carried the washed coveralls and weapons down the stairs and deposited them in a pile on the plastic sheet at the bottom of the stairs in the living room. The tarp was rolled up. He carried the metal rapid eye box and toted the tarp across the living room toward the French doors, dripping diluted blood onto the rug on the way out. More trickled onto the slate patio stones as the killer left the house to dispose of the evidence. Yikes. Yikes, for real. Also, who knew about the rapid eye? Yeah. Only a couple people. I mean, also, like, who was taser crazy? Exactly. After this, Ted went missing, of course, and his business partner, Mark, commissioned the helicopter, like we said back at the beginning. So the cops processed the scene and Ted's corpse was taken to the coroner. Two detectives drove into Manhattan to alert Generosa to the murder and try to talk to them. And the couple refused to speak to the police and employed criminal defense attorneys right away. Wow. Which is smart, but also makes you look guilty. Oh, yeah. Guilty as hell. Mm -hmm. Later that day, Generosa told her children that their father had died, originally saying that Ted took too much medication while drinking and killed himself. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. So after, you know, obviously the media got a hold of this, he's a very, very wealthy and semi-famous man. It became public knowledge that he had been murdered. She then suggested to them that maybe one of their father's boyfriends killed him. Stop. Suggesting that he was gay. Yeah. Wow. Clearly, suspicion first went to Danny and Generosa for many reasons. Like, only the two of them and the security guy knew where the rapid eye system was. It was literally, like, hidden in a secret room in a closet in a secret wall, you know? Yeah, come on. No random burglar or gay lover would know where to find it. Like, Ted lived in this house. He knew it intimately, and he didn't even know it was there, you know? Oh, my God. Obviously, a huge motive, too, depending on if Ted had changed his will which it turned out he hadn't. 
Generosa stood to inherit his entire almost $100 million fortune and Ugh. her beloved beach house and all of the property. And she would also retain full custody of the children. Danny also took both of their cars to be meticulously detailed only a day or two after the slaying, potentially erasing any blood evidence that might have been left there. Doing their due diligence, the detectives also chased down leads to potential other killers with motive, including an ex-employee Ted had recently fired, a group of investors who had lost a ton of money through one of Ted's deals, some other people he had business disputes with, and even Randy Day, Ted's first wife. Now, this is crazy. Not only had Randy borrowed a million dollars from Ted, and I guess he was maybe trying to get it back, her second husband, who was a Greek shipping magnate, had had his head blown off with a shotgun in July of 1998 in the midst of a nasty divorce from Randy. Stop. But yeah, I guess she was in Connecticut at the time and he was in Greece and they could not trace her back to the murder. But they're like, whoa, both your husbands are dead, lady, and you owed him a million dollars. This is looking not good for you. But they could not do anything to tie Randy to the, the murder. Oh my God. But also... Randy, honey, what is happening in your life? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my, oh God. my God. Like, what? What is going on? So, yeah, all of these suspects were eliminated, and the investigation began to focus again on Danny and Generosa. The only problem is that they both had alibis. Danny's family claimed he had been with them all evening and the next morning as they prepared for the wedding. And Generosa had been home with her children and there's like, you know, security cameras and stuff when you're living in a fancy hotel. Yeah. However, when police discovered that Danny had purchased a stun gun of the same make that had been used on Ted, the coroner was able to literally take the same make that he was proven to have bought and match it to the burn marks on Ted's body. They felt pretty strongly that they had their guy. While being investigated, life moved on for Danny and Generosa, who discovered, like I said, Ted had never changed his will. Generosa was entitled to the majority of his $97 million fortune. And they had no idea. They said they had no idea. The attorney that like told them did say they acted surprised. But who knows? I mean, that could have been an acting job. And I don't know. I don't know if they would have known, you know? So Danny got a quickie divorce from Tammy and married Generosa only one day later. He wasn't and divorced from Tammy? This whole time he hasn't been divorced from Tammy. Wow. Okay. Now when he is going to get some money, because she's inheriting all the money, and he's going to get married to her. They got married in January of 2002, only three months after Ted's murder. Oh, my God. Which caused, of course, a media spectacle. Newspapers cast suspicion on the newlyweds and dubbed Generosa the Merry Widow. But the honeymoon was short-lived, as it often is on the show. <laughs> and they discovered in June of 2002 that Generosa's breast cancer had spread throughout her body. No. Yeah. So Generoso went first to a hospital on Long Island where they asked her about her medical history and were shocked that she claimed to have never had cancer. This is what I'm talking about. It's very murky, like, that she denied this for some reason. Especially because I feel like the megalomaniacs we cover always pretend they have cancer. They, nobody is like has cancer and is pretending they don't, you know? Yeah, but 
if her mother did too. I don't know. It's weird. It's like psychologically, maybe she just doesn't want to be weak or something. She thinks that people will look at her differently. Yeah. Because she was a brass balls bitch. So I, I can see yeah. maybe it's like a mental thing with her, you know? So then Generosa went to Beth Israel Hospital in Manhattan for a series of tests, which determined that the cancer had spread too far to make surgery an option. The disease had invaded her lymphatic system and was already attacking her brain just like it had in her mother. Babe. Stop. Yeah. Chemotherapy could extend her life by a few years, but nothing would save her. Wow. Over the next year, the couple fell apart under the media and police scrutiny and also while obviously contending with Generosa's failing health and certain looming death. So Generosa began to drink heavily while abusing her pain medication and she had to be hospitalized more than once to pump her stomach. Oh, God. So Danny felt that her faithful British housekeeper, Kay, who was promised money in the will too, was actually like aiding Generosa and her death wish. Generosa kind of wanted to die before the cancer took her. And so Danny began to fight with the British housekeeper a lot because he was super paranoid that if his wealthy wife died under murky circumstances, he'd be charged with both Ted and Generosa's murder. Yeah, so they're still being tried during this entire time. Yeah, so they're being investigated. Okay. Charges haven't been levied against either one of them yet. So they're fighting constantly now because Generosa is like starting to not trust Danny. She thinks he's cheating on her potentially. It seems like he was. Okay. And he's spending her money like crazy. He reportedly would go and do trips to Vegas and take all of his pals and be like a high roller. And he spent like over $2 million gambling. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, she's dying. Wow. Mm hmm. So Generosa in a fury changed her will to reflect that Kay would get like some portion, like a small portion, like only a million or two or something like that. But then the children would receive everything and Danny would get nothing. I think he would get like some small amount, but it's like a million dollars or something. But that was it out of her whole fortune. And Kay would actually retain custody of the children. Like Danny did feel connected to the kids and he felt like he should be their parent afterwards because he was their stepdad. And Generosa at the end of her life was like, no, I don't want you to have anything to do with my kids. She hadn't divorced him yet, but she was like, no, I want Kay to take care of the kids. Okay. So Danny was furious at this. Her attorneys offered him a better deal, like he would get a better deal in her will if he would sign a postnuptial agreement. And I think maybe that's because then maybe she could have divorced him or something. But Danny refused. Wow. He wouldn't sign the postnup. In the midst of all this chaos, Generosa Rand, Amon Pelosi, succumbed to her cancer and took her last breath in the hospital on August 22nd, 2003, at 47 years old. Whoa, so young. So young. And if she was responsible for Ted's death, she took that secret to the grave. Wow. Also, think about those kids. They're orphans again. Oh, Oh my God. How like, old are they now? They were, I think, 12. They were 10 when their dad died. And so I think this was like two years later. So I think that they're like 12-ish. Well, the, they're preteens. I guess the only shining light is that obviously when you grow up with that much money, like your housekeeper and everything is really like almost a parent type of yes. status. So I bet Kay was like as close as it gets <laughs> to 
They didn't like love her, unfortunately. Really? Oh no. Yeah, it seemed like Kay was more like catered to Generosa and okay. her issues than she did take care of the kids. However, they did really get along with their aunt Sandy, Ted's sister. Okay. So all in all, you know, through this, it gets nasty. Like Danny wants to have custody of the kids. He wants to have control of their trust. He's getting sued by J.P. Morgan, who is suing like a wrongful death suit on him. It's like crazy. And throughout all of this, the kids are obviously traumatized. But at the end of the day, Sandy did win custody. Awesome, 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 awesome. Ted's sister, they went to go live with her and her husband in Alabama, who was a doctor. Her husband's a doctor. So like, what a strange life. Like you're in Russia, then you are in the lap of luxury. They went to school in England and a boarding school and they were back in Alabama, you know? Crazy. Super crazy. But it was good. It was really good. They were very, very happy with Sandy. And then later on, I'll talk about it, but Greg directed and produced a documentary about their life and their Aunt Sandy is on it. And they seem like they have a great rapport. So Alabama's a fun place for kids. You were born in Alabama, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember you just like play outside all the time. And I mean, that was obviously in the 90s too. But I just remember whenever we'd go down there, we would just like catch lightning bugs and go play in like Aww. little riverbeds. And it was just super Southern vibes. So you're technically a Southern girl. Yeah. Only for like a year though. (laughs) You're also a Midwestern girl. You're also a Boston girl and you're really a Los Angeles girl. You are everything. Yeah. Now I'm (laughs) definitely a California girl. Uh Uh-huh. Danny was alerted to Generosa's passing by her attorney several hours after her death. However, he did manage to get possession of her ashes after her cremation. And he did this bizarre photo op at the Stanhope Hotel He later told newspapers that she had begged him that after she passed to like take her back to this place where they fell in love. And so he like placed a box, not even an urn, like a cardboard box with her remains on the bar where they had first fallen in love and put her favorite drink, which was a Cosmo on the rocks, which is so late 90s in front of her with a cigarette while he lit up and drank a beer. And there's a picture of this, like he set up this photo op. Oh my God. It's bizarre. I'll, I'll definitely put that one on the Instagram. You couldn't stretch for like a urn or like anything better than a cardboard box. Like what was he thinking? Oh my God. Also how pissed must have Generosa been. <laughs> After how she had such a meticulous sense of style. And then he's carting her around in front of the newspapers in a cardboard box. Oh my God. She must have been so pissed. She haunted the fuck out of him. She's like, come on. She's like, I have a Ming vase that you have to put me in. Somehow in the middle of fighting off lawsuits and indictments, because of course, like the police are still coming after him, as well as like, while they're like investigating him, they find out that he and his wife had like, he was an electrician and also unlicensed because he never even took like whatever board exams or whatever you have to take. He had hacked his way into like the power grid and had been getting free electricity from the electric company for years to the tune of $43,000 worth of electricity. Stop. Yeah, so they find this out during the investigation. So they are charging him with that crime for stealing all of the electricity. 
Oh my God. So he's like in it. I mean, he is up to his neck and shit. And somehow he still manages to meet and get engaged to a young, beautiful blonde bank teller named Jennifer Zolnowski. In January 2004, while celebrating their engagement in Hawaii with their friends and family, Danny was arrested for punching a crew member of a tour boat when they refused to serve more alcohol to a drunk woman in his party. This guy sucks. He cannot stay out of trouble. And also, dude, like, Generosa's only been dead for four months and he's already engaged in Hawaii on a pleasure Celebrating. Yeah. Celebrating. So, I mean, obviously he was cheating on her. Clearly. Of course. Yeah. Well, he can't stay out of trouble and he's about to be in a lot more of it because two and a half long years after Ted's death, Danny Pelosi was finally charged with murder. God, why did it take so long? I think that there was like a lot of circumstantial evidence and they were trying to build a stronger case. And also, I'm sure it was complicated by Generosa dying, you know? Yeah. So he was taken to jail to await his trial, leaving behind his now pregnant fiance. Oh my God. These poor women who get impregnated by him. Oh Uh, God. I know. He's a nightmare. From jail, the prosecution contended that while in prison, Danny had told two fellow prisoners at separate times that he had committed the murder, one of whom had made a recording of him confessing. So they had it on tape. He also had been plotting from his jail cell in an attempt to influence a potential juror and assault witnesses against him. There was even evidence that he had made threats against the prosecutor's children. Oh, my God. Gross. Not a good look for you, Danny. You shit for brains. So (laughs) (laughs) the trial began in fall 2004, just after Jennifer delivered Danny's baby boy on August 31st, 2004. So they, I like did a reverse conception thing. They conceived in early December. Ew. Yeah. And she died August 22nd that same year. Oh, God. hmm And they also got married in jail before the trial, which I, I think that she was involved in some of the threats made to the prosecutor's kids or something. So they might have gotten married in jail so that they didn't have to testify against each other. This is just a mess. It's a mess, but that totally makes sense. Yeah. So the prosecution claims the motive for the murder was getting his hands on Ted Ammon's money. And the strongest evidence, I think, is the taser stuff matching the wounds on Ted's neck. And the fact that he was one of only three people who knew where the rapid eye system was located. There was also just tons of witnesses who said he confessed the murder to them. (laughs) Like, stop. Yeah, there was tons. Apparently, old Danny boy liked to talk. A friend of Danny's named Dale Cassidy, an ex-girlfriend named Tracy, and Kay Main, the housekeeper, all testified that Danny had confessed the crime. The ex-girlfriend claimed Danny had told her that Generosa, his cousin, and a friend were present when the murder happened and, quote, I bashed his fucking brains in and he cried like a bitch. Yeah, those, like, egomaniacs can't keep their mouths shut. They need to brag about everything. Mm-hmm. And then try to, like, run some schemes, like, out of the prison that always fail. Like, people always snitch on them. Danny's own father, Bob, took the stand against him, testifying that the day after the murder, Danny asked him how he could get rid of incriminating evidence. And Bob was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't know what you're involved in, but don't ask me and I'm not talking to you about it. Wow. Yep. So the defense's insane story was that Ted had been killed by a gay lover. 
This is like homophobia number one. They love going yeah, here. I feel like there's another case that either we covered or that I've seen. Yes, it was the um, Sweet Like Candy episode. Remember they made that a big deal? Yeah. With Candy Mossler and Jock Mossler. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. They not okay. To, not okay. The only thing that they had to create that narrative was like the fact that he had that phone call with Mary where he said he was on a gay beach hours before his death. And then there was like a lot made that this like pubic hair had been found on his shoulder. But like later they discover what? Yeah, the pubic. It was his own pubic hair, apparently. (laughs) Oh my God. Guys. Yeah. And they did have like one witness who claimed to have had sex with Ted, you know, as a guy, obviously, two years earlier. But he like completely fell apart in cross-examination. He admitted that the two had never exchanged names, like that he had basically been out cruising, had sex with some random anonymous man. And he said even like in court, like, I wasn't really looking at his face, if you know what I mean. Oh my God. Yeah. And he's like, I just, I saw him on the news after he died and I like knew it was him. It was some guy that maybe kind of looked like Ted that he had had sex with. And now he's like going on the stand and they're like, are you sure it was him? And he's like, kind of, maybe, no, maybe. No, someone paid me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he completely (laughs) fell apart. And I mean, also just going back to the whole thing, like if this was a gay lover, how would the gay lover know to turn off all the cameras? Yeah, no, it's not. It's not working. It doesn't work. It's not a good thing. They also tried like later when the gay thing was not working, they tried to like be like, maybe Generosa's butler did it because she was so faithful to him or something. You know, that didn't work either. Oh my God. Against his attorney's wishes, Danny took the stand on his own behalf and made a terrible impression. Lol, lol, Also, that's another thing megalomaniacs do. They're like, I could just get on the stand and talk my way out of this. Yeah, yeah. It's like Jeffrey Dahmer, too. Mm -hmm. He came across arrogant, angry, and even sadistic when he admitted he enjoyed tasing his workers on the construction site. He was like, yeah, I liked it. I got a charge out of it. Is that what you want to hear? Like, he got, like, confrontational with the female prosecutor about it. Of course he did. He's a psychopath. Yeah, of course. The jury, they did not like him. They did not warm up to him. And everything he did did not come out favorably for him because they gave him a guilty verdict. Uh, From (sighs) Almost Paradise, money and rage. Those were the two major things. Juror number seven, Patricia Campbell said, Danny went nuts when he found out he would only get a portion of the money. He wanted it all. Nobody could handle the way he spoke. The look did not match the mouth. Like he was, he's a handsome guy. And he's like wearing designer suits, but then he opens his mouth and he's a fucking asshole with like, he had like a really like Long Island accent too. I can't really do it, but they said it was very pronounced. So news of the verdict spread quickly. Generosa's former attorney, Mike Dowd, told a reporter, Danny was clearly undone by his mouth and his insatiable greed. Yep. Yep. So Danny Pelosi was sentenced to 25 years to life and he will be eligible for parole in 2031 when he's 67 years old. Ew, why even? Ugh, he shouldn't be allowed out. So yeah, he is currently serving his sentence in Attica. He made headlines once again in 2011 when he was sentenced to one year in solitary confinement, which this is why I don't know if he's going to get out a whole year in solitary confinement. After making threatening phone calls to his wife, Jennifer, and a man she allegedly had an affair with. 
That's crazy. You can get solitary confinement for something that you're doing from jail to the outside world. I mean, I guess they have to punish you for something and you're already in jail. So what are they going to do? You know? Yeah, that's crazy. This is from the Daily Mail article. The man spoke to them and he wished to remain anonymous for good reason. And he said that Danny said on the phone, I know people who could be at your house in 45 minutes. And he went on to tell him the address the man lived at and what his daughter's name was. Whoa. That's coming from a convict in jail. Like, I'd be terrified. Yeah. Needless to say, the man very quickly ended his relationship with Jennifer and alerted the authorities. Poor Jennifer. Well, he was calling Jennifer, too, because I guess she was supposed to, like, go on vacation with this guy. And Danny was calling her and being like, if you go on this vacation, it's the last vacation you'll ever take. Wow. Yeah. So Jennifer filed for divorce from Danny that same year and said in court documents that Danny had been abusive to her during conjugal visits. Oh, no. I know. She looked like she was really young when they got together. I feel terribly. And he also had been threatening to her over the phone and via email and Facebook. He had somehow, like, gotten himself access to the internet to get a Facebook account and he was harassing her. I'd be so scared, especially if he's getting out in 10 years and they have a son together. Yeah. So Danny's had television appearances twice while incarcerated and both times he has claimed his innocence, of course, stating that he was only the fall guy for Generosa who hired hitmen to kill Ted. In 2012, he claimed her motivation was jealousy over the affair and love child that Ted had had with another woman. And in 2017, he made the outrageous assertion that Generosa had Ted killed because he was molesting the twins. Whoa. Just not okay. Not okay. Greg and Alexa obviously vehemently deny this disgusting allegation. So yeah, so screw him. He's locked up in Attica. I really don't think he's going to get paroled as early as he could because he seems like he has a lot of problems with authority and that doesn't always get you parole there. Speaking of the twins, they were raised by their Aunt Sandy and mostly escaped media attention until Greg produced and directed a documentary called 59 Middle Lane. And they did this in, I think, 2015 when they were in their very early 20s. And they go from like Alabama at their aunt's house to the Hamptons to Russia to try to find their birth mother. And oh my God. unfortunately, their birth mother had already passed. She was a sex worker who had died of alcoholism. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, that's some like Tolstoy Russian literature sadness right there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But the kids are doing really well. I, I don't know that much about Alexa, but Greg actually started a clothing company called Big Flower with his wife and he now has a child and they used to have a storefront in the Hamptons, but I think with like all the COVID stuff, it closed, but they still have an online presence. So if you guys want to support Greg, he has a company called Big Flower, which is in honor of his father and their family. It's like men's and like high-end lifestyle type stuff. So check that out. It's Big Flower based out of the Hamptons. So the kids sold the Hamptons house at the end of 2017 for $8.35 million. And the current estimate is around $13 million. Whoa. Whoa. So that is... How did it go up that much? I think that the people who bought it redid the whole place. Wow. I mean, $13 million is a lot for a murder house, I got to tell you. It's a lot. It's a lot. I hope that the Ammon kids are doing well. I like based on the website I saw of Greg and his adorable wife, they looked very happy. So what an interesting life for those children, you know? 
Seriously. Yeah. So that is the insane story of Ted Ammon and the brutal Hamptons murder. Wow. Jesse. Crazy. What a wild ride. It really, really was. It was a roller coaster. In conclusion, ultimatums for marriage proposals never work. Even if you get married later, I mean, something like this could happen. Jeez Louise. It does not work in relationships, no. Nope. Also, if you're gonna sign up to be a trophy husband, maybe you shouldn't spend your spare time stealing electricity from the power grid. (laughs) Valid point. Very valid point. Don't need to do it. You don't need to do it. Yes, and as always, follow your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thanks, guys, for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.